This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Christine Blashford, www.wokeupthismorning.co.uk. The Price of Love by Arnold Bennett. Chapter 12 Runaway Horses. Part 1 Rachel, according to her own impression the next morning, had no sleep during the night. The striking of the hall clock could not be heard in the bedroom with the door closed, but it could be felt as a faint, distinct concussion, and she had thus noted every hour, except four o'clock, when daylight had come and the street-lamp had been put out. She had deliberately feigned sleep as Louis entered the room, and had maintained the soft, regular breathing of a sleeper until long after he was in bed. She did not wish to talk. She could not have talked with any safety. Her brain was occupied much by the strange and emotional episode of Julian's confession, but still more by the situation of her husband in the affair. Julian's story had precisely corroborated one part of Mrs. Molden's account of her actions on the evening when the banknotes had disappeared. Little by little that recital of Mrs. Molden's had been discredited, and at length cast aside as no more important than the delirium of a dying creature. It was an inconvenient story, and would only fit in with the alternative theories that money had wings and could fly on its own account— or that there had been thieves in the house, far easier to assume that Mrs. Molden, in some lapse, had unwittingly done away with the notes. But Mrs. Molden was now suddenly reinstated as a witness, and if one part of her evidence was true, why should not the other part be true? Her story was that she had put the remainder of the banknotes on the chair in the landing, and then, she thought, in the wardrobe. Rachel recalled clearly all that she had seen and all that she had been told. She remembered once more the warnings that had been addressed to her— she lived the evening and the night of the theft over again, many times monotonously, and with increasing woe and agitation. Then, with the greenish dawn that the blinds let into the room, came some refreshment and new health to the brain, but the trend of her ideas was not modified. She lay on her side and watched the unconscious Louis for immense periods, and occasionally tears filled her eyes. The changes in her existence seemed so swift and so tremendous as to transcend belief. Was it conceivable that only twelve hours earlier she had been ecstatically happy? In twelve hours, in six hours, she had aged twenty years, and she now saw the Rachel of the reception and of the bicycle lesson as a young girl, touchingly ingenuous, with no more notion of danger than a baby. At six o'clock she arose. Already she had formed the habit of arising before Louis, and had reconciled herself to the fact that Louis had to be forced out of bed. Happily, his feet once on the floor, he became immediately manageable. Already she was the conscience and timekeeper of the house. She could dress herself noiselessly. In a week she had perfected all her little devices for avoiding noise and saving time. She finally left the room neat, prim, with lips set to a thousand responsibilities. She had a peculiar sensation of tight elastic about her eyes, but she felt no fatigue and she did not yawn. Mrs. Tams, who had just descended, found her taciturn and exacting. She would have every household task performed precisely in her own way, without compromise. And it appeared that the house, which had the air of being in perfect order, was not in order at all, that indeed the processes of organisation had, in young Mrs. Vore's opinion, scarcely yet begun. It appeared that there was no smallest part or corner of the house as to which young Mrs. Vore's had not got very definite ideas and plans. The individuality of Mrs. Tams was to have scope nowhere. But after all, this seemed quite natural to Mrs. Tams. When Rachel went back to the bedroom, about seven-thirty, to get Louis by ruthlessness and guile out of bed, she was surprised to discover that he had already gone up to the bathroom. She guessed, with vague alarm from this symptom, that he had a new and very powerful interest in life. He came to breakfast at three minutes to eight, three minutes before it was served. When she entered the parlour in the wake of Mrs. Tams, he kissed her with gay fervour. 
She permitted herself to be kissed. Her unresponsiveness, though not marked, disconcerted him and somewhat dashed his mood, whereupon Rachel, by the reassurance of her voice, set about to convince him that he had been mistaken in deeming her unresponsive, so that he wavered between two moods. As she sat behind the tray, amid the exquisite odours of fresh coffee and Ted Malkin's bacon, for she had forgiven Miss Malkin, behaving like a staid wife of old standing, she well knew that she was a mystery for Louis. She was the source of his physical comfort, the origin of the celestial change in his life, which had caused him to admit fully that to live in digs was a rotten game. But she was also that morning a most sinister mystery. Her behaviour was faultless. He could seize on no definite detail that should properly disturb him. Only she had woven a veil between herself and him. Still, his liveliness scarcely abated. "'Do you know what I'm going to do this very day as ever is?' he asked. "'What is it?' "'I'm going to buy you a bike.' "'I've had enough of that old crock I borrowed for you. "'I shall return it and come back with a new one. "'And I know the precise bike that I shall come back with. "'It's at Bostock's at Hambridge. "'They've just opened a new cycle department.' "'Oh, Louis!' she protested. "'His scheme for spending money on her flattered her. "'But nevertheless it was a scheme for spending money. Two hundred and twenty-five pounds had dropped into his lap, "'and he must needs begin instantly to dissipate it. "'He could not keep it. That was Louis.' She refused to see that the purchase of a bicycle was the logical consequence of her lessons. She desired to believe that by some miracle at some future date she could possess a bicycle, without a bicycle being bought, and in the meantime was there not the borrowed machine? Suddenly she yawned. "'Didn't you sleep well?' he demanded. "'Not very.' "'Oh!' She could almost see into the interior of his brain where he was persuading himself that fatigue alone was the explanation of her peculiar demeanour, and rejoicing that the mystery was, after all, neither a mystery nor sinister. "'I say,' he began, between two puffs of a cigarette after breakfast, "'I shall send back half of that money to Julian. I'll send the notes by registered post.' "'Shall you?' "'Yes. Don't you think he'll keep them?' "'Supposing I was to take them over to him myself, and insist,' she suggested. "'It's a notion. When?' "'Well, on Saturday afternoon he'll be at home probably, then.' "'All right,' Louis agreed. "'I'll give you the money later on.' Nothing more was said as to the Julian episode. It seemed that husband and wife were equally determined not to discuss it merely for the sake of discussing it. Shortly after half-past eight Louis was preparing the borrowed bicycle and his own in the back yard. "'I shall ride mine and tow the crock,' said he, looking up at Rachel as he screwed a valve. She had come into the yard in order to show a polite curiosity in his doings. "'Isn't it dangerous?' "'Are you dangerous?' he laughed. "'But when shall you go?' "'Now. Shan't you be late at the works?' "'Well, if I'm late at the beautiful works, I shall be late at the beautiful works. Those who don't like it will have to lump it.' Once more it was the consciousness of a loose, entirely available two hundred and twenty-five pounds that was making him restive under the yoke of regular employment. For a row of pins that morning he would have given Jim Horrocleave a week's notice, or even the amount of a week's wages in lieu of notice. Rachel sighed, but within herself. In another minute he was elegantly flying down Biker's Lane, guiding his own bicycle with his right hand and the crock with his left hand. The feat appeared miraculous to Rachel, who watched from the bow window of the parlour. Beyond question he made a fine figure, and it was for her that he was flying to Hanbridge. She turned away to her domesticity. Part two. It seemed to her that he had scarcely been gone ten minutes when one of the glorious taxicabs which had recently usurped the stand of the historic fly under the town hall porch drew up at the front door and Louis got out of it. The sound of his voice was the first intimation to Rachel that it was Louis who was arriving. He shouted at the cabman as he paid the fare. The window of the parlour was open and the curtains pinned up. She ran to the window and immediately saw that Louis's head was bandaged. Then she ran to the door. He was climbing rather stiffly up the steps. 
"'All right, all right,' he shouted at her, a spill nothing of the least importance, but both the jiggers are pretty well converted into old iron. I tell you, it's all right. Shut the door.' He bumped down on the oak chest and took a long breath. "'But you are frightfully hurt,' she exclaimed. She could not properly see his face for the bandages. Mrs. Tams appeared. Rachel murmured to her in a flash, "'Go out the back way and fetch Dr. Yardley at once.' She felt herself absolutely calm. What puzzled her was Louis shouting. Then she understood he was shouting from mere excitement, and did not realise that he shouted. "'No need for any doctor. Quite simple,' he called out. But Rachel gave a word confirming the original order to Mrs. Tams, who disappeared. First thing I knew I was the centre of an admiring audience, and fat Mrs. Heath, in her white apron and the steel hanging by her side, was washing my face with a sponge and a basin of water, and Heath stood by with brandy. It was nearly opposite their shop. People in the tram had a rare view of me. "'But was it the tram-car you ran into?' Rachel asked eagerly. He replied with momentary annoyance. "'Tram-car? Of course it wasn't the tram-car. Moreover, I didn't run into anything. Two horses ran into me. I was coming down past the shambles into Duckbank very slowly, because I could hear a tram coming along from the market-place. And just as I got past the shambles, and could see along the market-place, I saw a lad on a cart-horse, and leading another horse. No stirrups, no saddle. He'd no more control over either horse than a baby over an elephant. Not a bit more.' Both horses were running away. The horse he was supposed to be leading was galloping first. They were passing the tram at a fine rate. But how far were they off you? About ten yards. I said to myself, if that chap doesn't look out, he'll be all over me in two seconds. I turned as sharp as I could away to the left. I could have turned sharper if I'd had your bicycle in my right hand instead of my left, but it wouldn't have made any difference. The first horse simply made straight for me. There was about a mile of space for him between me and the tram, but he wouldn't look at it. He wanted me, and he had me. They both had me. I never felt the actual shock. Curious, that. I'm told one horse put his foot clean through the back wheel of my bike. Then he was stopped by the front palings of the Conservative Club. Oh, a pretty smash! The other horse and the boy thereon finished halfway up Moorthorne Road. He could stick on, no mistake that kid could. Midland Railway horses, whoppers, either being taken to the vets or brought from the vets, I don't know. I forget. Rachel put her hand on his arm. "'Do come into the parlour and have the easy-chair.' "'I'll come, I'll come,' he said, with the same annoyance. "'Give us a chance.' His voice was now a little less noisy. "'But you might have been killed.' "'You bet I might. Eight hoofs all over me. One tap from any of the eight would have settled yours sincerely.' "'Louis,' she spoke firmly, "'you must come into the parlour. Now come along, do, and sit down and let me look at your face.' She removed his hat, which was perched rather insecurely on the top of the bandages. "'Who was it looked after you?' Well, he hesitated, following her into the parlour, it seems to have been chiefly Mrs. Heath. But didn't they take you to a chemist's? Isn't there a chemist's handy? The great green had one of his bilious attacks and was in bed, it appears, and the great green's assistant is only just out of petticoats, I believe. However, everybody acted for the best, and here I am, and if you ask me, I think I've come out of it rather well. He dropped heavily on to the Chesterfield. What she could see of his cheeks was very pale. Open the window, he murmured. It's frightfully stuffy here. "'The window is open,' she said. In fact, a noticeable draught blew through the room. "'I'll open it a bit more.' Before doing so, she lifted his feet on to the Chesterfield. "'That's better, that's better,' he breathed. When, a moment later, she returned to him with a glass of water which she had brought from the kitchen, spilling drops of it along the whole length of the passage, he smiled at her and then winked. It was the wink that seemed pathetic to her. She had maintained her laudable calm until he winked, and then her throat tightened. He may have some dreadful internal injury, she thought. You never know, I may be a widow soon, and everyone will say how young she is to be a widow. It will make me blush. 
"'But such things can't happen to me. No, he's all right. He came up here alone. They'd never have let him come up here alone if he hadn't been all right. Besides, he can walk. How silly I am!' She bent down and kissed him passionately. "'I must have those bandages off, dearest,' she whispered. "'I suppose to-morrow I'd better return them to Mrs. Heath.' He muttered, "'She said she always kept linen for bandages in the shop, because they so often cut themselves. Now I used to think in my innocence that butchers never cut themselves.' Very gently and intently Rachel unfastened two safety-pins that were hidden in Louis's untidy hair. Then she began to unwind a long strip of linen. It stuck to a portion of the cheek close to the ear. Louis winced. The inner folds of the linen were discoloured. Rachel had a glimpse of a wound. "'Go on,' Louis urged. "'Get at it, child.' "'No,' she said. "'I think I shall leave it just as it is for the doctor to deal with. Shall you mind if I leave you for a minute? I must get some warm water and things ready against the doctor comes.' He retorted facetiously. "'Oh, do what you like. Work your will on me. Doctor, any one would think I was badly injured. Why, you cuckoo, it's only skin wounds.' "'But doesn't it hurt?' "'Depends what you call hurt. It ain't a picnic.' "'I think you're awfully brave,' she said simply. At the door she stopped and gazed at him, undecided. "'Louis,' she said in a motherly tone, "'I should like you to go to bed. I really should. You ought to, I'm sure.' "'Well, I shan't,' he replied. "'But please, to please me, you can get up again.' "'Oh, go to blazes!' he cried resentfully. "'What in thunder should I go to bed for, I should like to know? Have a little sense, do!' He shut his eyes. He had never till then spoken to her so roughly. "'Very well,' she agreed, with soothing acquiescence. His outburst had not irritated her in the slightest degree. In the kitchen, as she bent over the kettle and the fire, each object was surrounded by a sort of halo, like the moon in damp weather. She brushed her hand across her eyes, contemptuous of herself. Then she ran lightly upstairs and searched out an old linen garment, and tore the seams of it apart. She crept back to the parlour and peeped in. Louis had not moved on the sofa. His eyes were still closed. After a few seconds he said, without stirring, "'I've not yet passed away. I can see you.' She responded with a little laugh, somewhat forced. After an insupportable delay, Mrs. Tams reappeared, out of breath. Dr. Yardley had just gone out, but he was expected back very soon, and would then be sent down instantly. Mrs. Tams, quite forgetful of etiquette, followed Rachel, unasked, into the parlour. "'What?' said Louis loudly. Two of you isn't one enough?' Mrs. Tams vanished. "'Heath took charge of the bikes,' Louis murmured, as if to the ceiling. Over half an hour elapsed before the gate creaked. "'There he is!' Rachel exclaimed happily. After having conceived a hundred different tragic sequels to the accident, she was lifted by the mere creak of the gate into a condition of pure optimism, and she realised what a capacity she had for secretly being a ninny in an unexpected crisis. But she thought with satisfaction, "'Anyhow, I don't show it. That's one good thing.' She was now prepared to take oath that she had not for one moment been really anxious about Louis. Her demeanour, as she stated the case to the doctor, was a masterpiece of tranquil unconcern. Part three. Dr. Yardley said that he was in a hurry, that, in fact, he ought to have been quite elsewhere at the time. He was preoccupied and showed no sympathy with the innocent cyclist who had escaped the fatal menace of hooves. When Rachel offered him the torn linen, he silently disdained it, and, opening a small bag which he had brought with him, produced therefrom a roll of cotton wool in blue paper, and a considerable quantity of sticking-plaster on a brass reel. He accepted, however, Rachel's warm water. "'You might get me some Condy's fluid,' he said shortly. She had none. It was a terrible lapse for a capable housewife. Dr. Yardley raised his eyebrows. "'No Condy's fluid in the house?' She was condemned. "'I do happen to have a couple of tablets of chinosol,' he said, "'but I wanted to keep them in reserve for later in the day.' He threw two yellow tablets into the basin of water. Then he laid Louis flat on the sofa, asked him a few questions, and sounded him in various parts. And at length he slowly but firmly drew off Mrs. Heath's bandages and displayed Louis's head to the light. 
Hm! he exclaimed. Rachel restrained herself from any sound, but the spectacle was ghastly. The one particle of comfort in the dreadful matter was that Louis could not see himself. Thenceforward Dr. Yardley seemed to forget that he ought to have been elsewhere. Working with extraordinary deliberation, he coaxed out of Louis's flesh sundry tiny stones and many fragments of mud, straightened twisted bits of skin, and he removed other pieces entirely. He murmured, hm at intervals. He expressed a brief criticism of the performance of Mrs. Heath, as distinguished from her intentions. He also opined that the great green might not perhaps have succeeded much better than Mrs. Heath, even if he had not been bilious. When the dressing was finished, the gruesome terror of Louis's appearance seemed to be much increased. The heroic sufferer rose and glanced at himself in the mirror, and gave a faint whistle. "'Oh, so that's what I look like, is it? Well, what price me as a victim of the Inquisition?' he remarked. "'I should advise you not to take exercise just now, young man,' said the doctor. "'Do you feel pretty well?' "'Pretty well,' answered Louis, and sat down. In the lobby, the doctor, once more in a hurry, said to Rachel, "'Better get him quietly to bed. The wounds are not serious, but he's had a very severe shock.' "'He's not marked for life, is he?' Rachel asked anxiously. "'I shouldn't think so,' said the doctor, as if the point was a minor one. "'Let him have some nourishment. You can begin with hot milk. But put some water to it,' he added, when he was halfway down the steps. As Rachel re-entered the parlour, she said to herself, "'I shall just have to get him to bed somehow, whatever he says. If he's unpleasant, he must be unpleasant, that's all.' and she hardened her heart, but immediately she saw him again, sitting forlornly in the chair, with the whole of the left side of his face criss-crossed in whitish-grey plaster, she was ready to cry over him and flatter his foolishest whim. She wanted to take him in her arms, if he would but have allowed her. She felt that she could have borne his weight for hours without moving, had he fallen asleep against her bosom. Still, he must be got to bed. How negligent of the doctor not to have given the order himself! Then Louis said, "'I say, I think I may as well lie down.' She was about to cry out, "'Oh, you must!' but she forbore. She became as wily as old Batchgrew. "'Do you think so?' she answered, doubtfully. "'I've nothing else particular on hand,' he said. She knew that he wanted to surrender without appearing to surrender. "'Well,' she suggested, "'will you lie down on the bed for a bit?' "'I think I will. And then I'll give you some hot milk.' She dared not help him to mount the stairs, but she walked close behind him. "'I was thinking,' he said on the landing, "'I'd stroll down and take stock of those bicycles later in the day.' but perhaps I'm not fit to be seen. She thought, you won't stroll down later in the day, I shall see to that. By the way, he said, you might send Mrs. Tams down to Horacles to explain that I shan't give them my valuable assistance to-day. Oh, Mrs. Tams, the woman was just bustling out of the bedroom, duster in hand. Will you toddle down to the works and tell them I'm not coming? Eh, mister, breathed Mrs. Tams, looking at him. It's a mercy it's no worse. Yes, Louis teased her, but you go and look at the basin downstairs, Mrs. Tams, that'll give you food for thought. Shaking her head, she smiled at Rachel, because the master had spirit enough to be humorous with her. In the bedroom, Louis said, "'I might be more comfortable if I took some of my clothes off.' Thereupon he abandoned himself to Rachel. She did as she pleased with him, and he never opposed. Seven bruises could be counted on his left side. He permitted himself to be formally and completely put to bed. He drank half a glass of hot milk, and then said that he could not possibly swallow any more. Everything had been done that ought to be done, and that could be done, and Rachel kept assuring herself that there was not the least cause for anxiety. She also told herself that she had been a ninny once that morning, and that once was enough. Nevertheless, she remained apprehensive, and her apprehensions increased. It was Louis's unnatural manageableness that disturbed her. And when, about three hours later, he murmured, "'Old girl, I feel pretty bad,' I knew it,' she said to herself. His complaint was like a sudden thunderclap in her ears after long faint rumblings of a storm." Towards tea-time she decided that she must send for the doctor again. Louis indeed demanded the doctor. He said that he was very ill. 
His bruised limbs and his damaged face caused him a certain amount of pain. It was not, however, the pain that frightened him, but a general and profound sensation of illness. He could describe no symptoms, there were indeed no symptoms, save the ebbing of vitality. He said he had never in his life felt as he felt then. His appearance confirmed the statement. The look of his eyes was tragic. His hands were pale. His agonised voice was extremely distressing to listen to. The bandages heightened the whole sinister effect. Dusk shadowed the room. Rachel lit the gas and drew the blinds, but in a few moments Louis complained of the light, and she had to lower the jet. The sounds of the return of Mrs. Tams could be heard below. Mrs. Tams had received instructions to bring the doctor back with her, but Rachel's ear caught no sign of the doctor. She went out to the head of the stairs. The doctor simply must be there. It was not conceivable that when summoned he should be out twice in one day, but so it was. Mrs. Tams, whispering darkly from the dim foot of the stairs, said that Mrs. Yardley hoped that he would be in shortly, but could not be sure. "'What am I to do?' thought Rachel. "'This is a crisis. Everything depends on me. What shall I do? Shall I send for another doctor?' She decided to risk the chances and wait. It would be too absurd to have two doctors in the house. What would people say of her and of Louis if the rumour ran that she had lost her head and filled the house with doctors when the case had no real gravity? People would say that she was very young and inexperienced, and a freshly married wife, and so on. And Rachel hated to be thought young or freshly married. Besides, another doctor might be out, too, and further the case could not be truly serious. Of course, if afterwards it did prove to be serious, she would never forgive herself. "'He'll be here soon,' she said cheerfully to Louis in the bedroom. "'If he isn't,' moaned Louis, and stopped. She gave him some brandy against his will. Then, taking his wrist to feel it, she felt his fingers close on her wrist, as if for aid. And she sat thus, on the bed, holding his hand in the gloom of the lowered gas. Part four. His weakness and his dependence on her gave her a feeling of kind superiority, and also her own physical well-being was such that she could not help condescending towards him. She cared for a trustful, helpless little dog— she thought a great deal about him she longed ardently to be of assistance to him she had an acute sense of responsibility and her duty yet notwithstanding all that her brain was perhaps chiefly occupied with herself and her own attitude towards existence she became mentally and imaginatively active to an intense degree she marvelled at existence as she had never marvelled before and while seeming suddenly to understand it better she was far more than ever baffled by it was it credible that the accident of a lad losing control of a horse could have such huge and awful consequences on two persons utterly unconnected with the lad? A few seconds sooner, a few seconds later, and naught would have occurred to Louis, but he must needs be at exactly a certain spot at exactly a certain instant, with the result that now she was in torture. If this, if that, if the other, Louis would have been well and gay at that very moment, instead of a broken organism humiliated on a bed and clinging to her like a despairing child. The rapidity and variety of events in her life again startled her, and once more she went over them. The disappearance of the banknotes was surely enough in itself, but on the top of that fell the miracle of her love affair. Her marriage was like a dream of romance to her, untrue, incredible. Then there was the terrific episode of Julian on the previous night. One would have supposed that after that the sensationalism of events would cease, but no, the unforeseeable had now occurred, something which reduced all else to mere triviality. And yet what had in fact occurred? Acquaintances, in recounting her story, would say that she had married her mistress's nephew, that there had been trouble between Louis and Julian about some banknotes, and that Louis had had a bicycle accident, naught more, a most ordinary chronicle. And if he died now, they would say that Louis had died within a month of the wedding, and how sad it was. Husbands indubitably do die, young wives indubitably are transformed into widows, daily event indeed. She seemed to perceive the deep hidden meaning of life. There were three Rachels in her, one who pitied Louis, one who pitied herself, 
and one who looked on and impartially comprehended. The last was scarcely unhappy, only fervently absorbed in the prodigious wonder of the hour. "'Can't you do anything?' Louis murmured. "'If Dr. Yardley doesn't come quick, I shall send for some other doctor,' she said, with decision. He sighed. "'Better send for a lawyer at the same time,' he said. "'A lawyer?' "'Yes, you know, I've not made my will.' "'Oh, Louis, please don't talk like that. I can't bear to hear you.' "'You'll have to hear worse things than that,' he said pettishly, loosing her hand. "'I've got to have a solicitor here. Later on you'll probably be only too glad that I had enough common sense to send for a solicitor. Somebody must have a little common sense. I expect you'd better send for Lawton. Oh, it's Friday afternoon. He'll have left early for his weekend golf, I bet.' This last discovery seemed to exhaust his courage. In another minute the doctor, cheerful and energetic, was actually in the room, and the gas brilliant. He gazed at an examinate Louis, made a few inquiries and a few observations of his own, gave some brief instructions, and departed. The day was, in truth, one of his busy days. He seemed surprised when Rachel softly called to him on the stairs. "'I suppose everything's all right, doctor?' "'Yes,' said he casually. "'He'll feel mighty queer for a few days, that's all.' "'Then there's no danger?' "'Certainly not.' "'But he thinks he's dying.' Dr. Yardley smiled carelessly. "'And do you?' "'He's no more dying than I am. That's only the effect of the shock. Didn't I tell you this morning? You probably won't be able to stop him just yet from thinking he's dying. It is a horrid feeling, but you needn't think so yourself, Mrs. Forres,' he smiled. "'Oh, doctor,' she burst out, "'you don't know how you've relieved me.' "'You'll excuse me if I fly away,' said Dr. Yardley calmly. "'There's a crowd of insurance patients waiting for me at the surgery.'" Part five. In the middle of the night Rachel was awakened by Louis's appeal. She was so profoundly asleep that for a few moments she could not recall what it was that had happened during the previous day to cause her anxiety. After the visit of the doctor, Louis's moral condition had apparently improved. He had affected to be displeased by the doctor's air of treating his case as though it was deprived of all importance. He had said that the doctor had failed to grasp his case. He had stated broadly that in these days of state health insurance all doctors were too busy and too wealthy to be of assistance to private patients capable of paying their bills in the old gentlemanly fashion. But his remarks had not been without a touch of facetiousness in their willful disgust. And the mere tone of his voice proved that he felt better. To justify his previous black pessimism, he had of course been obliged to behave in a certain manner, well known among patients who had been taking themselves too seriously, and Rachel had understood and excused. She would have been ready, indeed, to excuse for worse extravagances than any that could have occurred to the fancy of a nature so polite and benevolent as that of Louis, for in order to atone for her silly school-girlishness she had made a compact with herself to be an angel and a serpent simultaneously for the entire remainder of her married life. Then Mrs. Tams had come in, from errands of marketing, with a copy of the early special of the signal, containing a description of the accident. Mrs. Tams had never before bought such a thing as a newspaper, but an acquaintance of hers, who stood the market, with tripe and chitterlings, had told her that Mr. Forres was in the signal, and accordingly she had bravely stopped a newsboy in the street and made the purchase. To Rachel she pointed out the paragraph with pride, and to please her and divert Louis, Rachel had introduced the newspaper into the bedroom. The item was headed, Runaway Horses in Bursley Marketplace, Providential Escape. It spoke of Mr. Louis Forres's remarkable skill and presence of mind in swerving away with two bicycles. It said that Mr. Louis Forres was an accomplished cyclist, and that after a severe shaking, Mr. Louis Forres drove home in a taxicab, apparently little the worse, save for facial contusions, for his perilous adventure. Lastly, it said that a representative of the Midland Railway had assured our representative that the horses were not the property of the Midland Railway. Louis had sardonically repeated the phrase, apparently little the worse, murmuring it with his eyes shut. 
He had said, "'I wish they could see me.' Still, he had made no further mention of sending for a solicitor. He had taken a little food and a little drink. He had asked Rachel when she meant to go to bed. And at length Rachel, having first arranged food for use in the night, and fixed a sheet of notepaper on the gas-bracket as a screen between the gas and Louis, had undressed and got into bed, and gone off into a heavy slumber with a mind comparatively free. In response to his confusing summons she stumbled to her peignoir and slipped it on. "'Yes, dear,' she spoke softly. "'I couldn't bear it any longer,' said the voice of Louis. "'I just had to waken you.' She raised the gas, and her eyes blinked as she stared at him. His bedclothes were horribly disarranged. "'Are you in pain?' she asked, smoothing the blankets. "'No, but I'm so ill. I don't want to frighten you. The doctor said you'd feel ill. It's the shock, you know.' She stroked his hand. He did indubitably look very ill. His appearance of woe, despair, and dreadful apprehension was pitiable in the highest degree. With a gesture of intense weariness he declined food, nor could she persuade him to take anything whatever. "'You'll be ever so much better to-morrow. I'll sit up with you. You are bound to feel worse in the night.' "'It's more than shock that I've got,' he muttered. "'I say, Rachel, it's all up with me. I know I'm done for. You'll have to do the best you can.' The notion shot through her head that possibly, after all, the doctor might have misjudged the case. Suppose Louis were to die in the night. Suppose the morning found her a widow. The world was full of the strangest happenings. Then she was herself again, and immovably cheerful in her secret heart, she thought, "'I can go through worse nights than this. One night, some time in the future, either he will really be dying, or I shall.' This night is nothing. And she held his hand and sat in her old place on his bed. The room was chilly. She decided that in five minutes she would light the gas-stove and also make some tea with the spirit-lamp. She would have tea whether he still refused or not. His watch on the night-table showed half-past two. In about an hour the dawn would be commencing. She felt that she had reserves of force against any contingency, against any nervous strain. Then he said, "'I say, Rachel.' He was too ill to call her Louise." "'I shall make some tea soon,' she answered. He went on. "'You remember about that missing money? I mean, before Auntie died. You remember?' "'Don't talk about that, dear,' she interrupted him eagerly. "'Why should you bother about that now?' In one instant those apparently exhaustless reserves of moral force seemed to have ebbed away. She had imagined herself equal to any contingency, and now there loomed a contingency which made her quail. "'I've got to talk about that,' he said, in his weak and desperate voice." His bruised head was hollowed into the pillow, and he stared monotonously at the ceiling, upon which the paper-screen of the gas threw a great trembling shadow. "'That's why I wakened you. You don't know what the inside of my brain's like. Why did you say to them you found the scullery door open that night? You know perfectly well it wasn't open.' She could scarcely speak. "'I—I—Louis, I don't want to talk about that now. You're too ill,' she implored. "'I know why you said it. Be quiet,' she said sharply, and her voice broke. But he continued in the same tone. "'You made up that tale about the scullery door because you guessed I'd collared the money, and you wanted to save me from being suspected. Well, I did collar the money. Now I've told you.' She burst into a sob, and her head dropped on to his body. "'Louis!' she cried passionately, amid her sobs. "'Why ever did you tell me? You've ruined everything now, everything!' "'I can't help that,' said Louis, with a sort of obstinate and defiant weariness. "'It was on my mind, and I just had to tell you. You don't seem to understand that I'm dying.' Rachel jumped up and sprang away from the bed. "'Of course you're not dying,' she reproached him. "'How can you imagine such things?' Her heart suddenly hardened against him, against his white-bandaged head and face, against his feeble voice of a beaten martyr. It seemed to her disgraceful that he, a strong male creature, should be lying there damaged, helpless, and under the foolish delusion that he was dying. She recalled with bitter gusto the tone in which the doctor had said, "'He's no more dying than I am.' 
All her fears that the doctor might be wrong had vanished away. She now resented her husband's illness. As a nurse, when danger is over, will resent a patient's long convalescence, somehow charging it to him as a sin. I found the other half of the notes under the chair, on the— Louis began again. Please, she objected, with quick resounding violence, and raised a hand. He said, You must listen. She answered passionately, I won't listen, I won't listen, and if you don't stop, I shall leave the room. I shall leave you all alone, yes, I shall. She moved a little towards the door. His gloomy and shifty glance followed her, and there was a short silence. "'You needn't work yourself up into such a state,' murmured Louis at length. "'But I should like to know whether the scullery door was open or not when you came downstairs that night.' Rachel's glance fell. She blushed. The tears had ceased to drop from her eyes. She made no answer. "'You see,' said Louis, with a half-sneering triumph, "'I knew jolly well it wasn't open. So did old Batchgrew know, too.' She shut her lips together, went decisively to the mantelpiece, struck a match, and lit the stove. Like the patent gas-burner downstairs, the stove often had to be extinguished after the first lighting, and lighted again with a second and different kind of explosion, and so it was now. She flung down the match pettishly into the hearth. Throughout the whole operation she sniffed convulsively to prevent a new fit of sobbing, her peignoir being very near to the purple-green flames that folded themselves round the asbestos of the stove, she reflected that the material was probably inflammable, and that a careless movement might cause it to be ignited. And not a bad thing either, she said to herself. Then, without looking at all towards the bed, she lit the spirit-lamp in order to make tea. The sniffing continued as she went through the familiar procedure. The water would not boil, demonstrating the cruel truth of proverbs. She sat down, and gazing into the stove, now a rich red, ignored the saucepan. The dry heat from the stove burnt her ankles and face. Not a sound from the small saucepan balanced on its tripod over the wavering blue flame of the spirit-lamp. At last, uncontrollably impatient, she lifted the teapot off the inverted lid of the saucepan, where she had placed it to warm, and peered into the saucepan. The water was cheerfully boiling. She made the tea, and sat down again to wait until it should be infused. She had to judge the minutes as well as she could, for she would not go across to the night-table to look at Louis's watch. Her own was out of order, and so was the clock. She counted two hundred and fifty, and then, anticipating feverishly the tonic glow of the tea in her breast, she poured out a cup. Only colourless steaming water came forth from the pot. She had forgotten to put in the tea. Misfortune not unfamiliar to dazed makers of tea in the night. But to Rachel now the consequences of the omission seemed to amount to a tragedy. Had she the courage to begin the interminable weary process afresh? She was bound to begin it afresh. With her eyes obscured by tears she put the water back into the saucepan and searched for the match-box. The water boiled almost immediately, and by so doing comforted her. While waiting for the infusion she realised little by little that for a few moments she must have been nearly hysterical, and she partially resumed possession of herself. The sniffing ceased, her vision cleared, she grew sardonic. All her chest was filled with cold lead. This truly is the end, she thought. She had thought that Julian's confession must be the end of the violent experiences which had befallen her in Mrs. Maldon's house. Then she had thought that Louis's accident must be the end. Each time she had been mistaken. But she could not be mistaken now. No conceivable event, however awful, could cap Louis's confession that he had thieved. And under such circumstances— she did not drink the first cup of tea, no, she must needs carry it, spilling it, to Louis in bed. He was asleep, or he was in a condition that resembled sleep. Assuredly he was ill. He made a dreadful object in his bandages amid the disorder of the bed, upon which strong shadows fell from the gas and from the stove. No matter, if he was ill, he was ill, so much the worse for him. 
He was not dangerously ill. He was merely passing through a stress which had to be passed through. It would soon be over, and he would be the same eternal Louis that he had always been. Here, she said. He stirred, opened his eyes. Here's some tea, she said coldly. Drink it. He gave a gesture of dissent, but it was useless. She had brewed the tea and had determined that he should drink a cup. Whether he desired it or loathed it was a question irrelevant. He was appointed to drink some tea, and she would not taste until he had drunk. This self-sacrifice was her perverse pleasure. "'Come, please don't make it any more awkward for me.' With her right arm she raised the pillow and his head on it. He drank, his sick lips curling awkwardly upon the rim of the cup which she held for him. When he had drunk she put the cup down on the night-table and tidied his bed, as though he had been a naughty child. And then she left him, and drank tea slowly, savouringly, by herself, in a chair, near the dressing-table, out of the same cup. Part six. She had lied about the scullery door being open when she went downstairs on the night of the disappearance of the banknotes. The scullery door had not been open. The lie was clumsy, futile, ill-considered. It had burst out of the impulsiveness and generosity of her nature. She had perceived that suspicion was falling, or might fall, upon Louis Fores, and the sudden lie had flashed forth to defend him. That she could ultimately be charged with having told the lie in order to screen herself from suspicion had never once occurred to her, and it did not even occur to her now as she sat perched uncomfortably on the chair in the night of desolation. She was now deeply ashamed of the lie, and she ought not to have been ashamed, for it was a lie magnanimous and fine. She might rather have taken pride in it. She was especially ashamed of her repetition of the lie on the following day to Thomas Batchgrew, and of her ingenious embroidery upon it. She hated to remember that she had wept violently in front of Thomas Batchgrew when he had charged her with having a secret about the loss of the notes. He must have well known that she was lying. He must have suspected her of some complicity. And if later he had affected to ignore all the awkward aspects of the episode, it was only because he wished to remain on good terms with Louis for his own ends. Had she herself all the time suspected Louis? In the harsh realism of the night hours she was not able, positively, to assert that she had never suspected him until after Julian's confession had made her think, but on the other hand she would not directly accuse herself of having previously suspected him. The worst that she could say was that she had been determined to believe him guiltless. She loved him, she had wanted his love, she would permit nothing to prevent their coming together, and so in her mind she had established his innocence, apparently beyond any overthrowing. She might have allowed herself to surmise that in the early past he had been naughty, untrustworthy, even wicked, but that was different, that did not concern her. His innocence with regard to the banknotes alone mattered, and she had been genuinely convinced of it. A few moments before he kissed her for the first time she had been genuinely convinced of it, and after the betrothal her conviction became permanent. She tried to scorn now the passion which had blinded her. Mrs. Maldon at any rate must have known that he was connected with the disappearance of the notes. In the light of Louis's confession Rachel could see all that Mrs. Maldon was implying in that last conversation between them. So that she might win him she had been ready to throttle every doubt of his honesty, but now the indubitable fact that he was a thief seemed utterly monstrous and insupportable. And moreover his crime was exceptionally cruel. Was it conceivable that he could so lightly cause so much distress of spirit to a woman so aged, defenceless, and kind? According to the doctor, the shock of the robbery had not been the originating cause of Mrs. Maldon's death, but it might have been. Quite possibly it had hastened death. Louis was not merely a thief, he was a dastardly thief. But even that, in her eyes, did not touch the full height of his offence. The vilest quality in him was his capacity to seem innocent. She could recall the exact tone in which he had exclaimed, "'Would you believe that old Batch practically accused me of stealing the old lady's money? Don't you think it's a shame?' 
The recollection filled her with frigid anger. Her resentment of the long lie which he had lived in her presence since their betrothal was tremendous in its calm acrimony. A man who could behave as he had behaved would stop at nothing, would be capable of all. She contrasted his conduct with the grim candour of Julian Maldon, whom she now admired. It was strange and dreadful that both the cousins should be thieves. The prevalence of thieves in that family gave her a shudder. But she could not judge Julian Maldon severely. He did not appear to her as a real thief. He had committed merely an indiscretion. It was his atonement that made her admire him. Though she hated confessions, though she had burnt his exasperating document, she nevertheless liked the manner of his atonement, whereas she contemned Louis for having confessed. He thought he was dying, and so he confessed, she reflected with asperity. He hadn't even the pluck to go through with what he had begun. Ah, oh, if I had committed a crime and once denied it, I would deny it with my last breath, and no torture should drag it out of me. And she thought, I am punished. This is my punishment for letting myself be engaged while Mrs. Maldon was dying. Often she had dismissed as childish the notion that she was to blame for accepting Louis just when she did, but now it returned full of power and overwhelmed her, and like a whipped child she remembered Mrs. Maldon's warning, my nephew is not to be trusted. The woman who married him would suffer horribly, and she was the woman who had married him. It seemed to her that the warnings of the dying must of necessity prove to be valid. Some mysterious phenomenon on the window-blind at her right hand attracted her attention, and she looked round half-startled. It was the dawn, furtive and inexorable. She had watched dawns, and she had watched them in that very bedroom. Only on the previous morning the dawn had met her smarting and wakeful eyes, and she had imagined that no dawn could be more profoundly sad. And a little earlier, still, she had been desolating herself for hours, because Louis was going to be careless about his investments, because he was unreliable, and she would have to watch ceaselessly over his folly. She had imagined then that no greater catastrophe could overtake her than some material result of his folly. What a trivial apprehension! What a child she had been! In the excitement and alarm of his accident she had honestly forgotten her suspicions of him. That disconcerted her. She rose from the chair, stiff. The stove, with its steady faint roar of imperfectly consumed gas, had thoroughly heated the room. In careful silence she put the tea-things together. Then she ventured to glance at Louis. He was asleep. He had been restlessly asleep for a long time. She eyed him bitterly in his bandages. Only last night she had been tormented by that fear that his face might be marked for life. Again the trivial! What did it matter whether his face was marked for life or not? It did not occur to her to attempt to realise how intense must have been the spiritual tribulation which had forced him to confess. She knew that he was not dying, that he was in no danger whatever, and she was perfectly indifferent to the genuineness of his own conviction that he was dying. She simply thought, he had to go through all that. If he fancied he was dying, can I help it? Then she looked at her own empty bed. He reposed, he slept, but she did not repose nor sleep. She drew aside one of the blinds, and as she did so she could feel the steady slight current of cold air entering the room from the window open at the top. The street seemed to be full of daylight. The dawn had been proceeding in its vast secrecy and was now accomplished. She drew up the blind slowly, and then the gas-flame over the dressing-table seemed so pale and futile that she extinguished it, from a sort of pity. In silence she pulled out the iron bolts in the window-sash that had been Mrs. Maldon's device for preventing burglars from opening further a window already open a little, thus combining security with good hygiene. Louis had laughed at these bolts, but Mrs. Maldon had so instilled their use into both Rachel and Mrs. Tams that to insert them at night was part of the unchangeable routine of the house. Rachel gently pushed up the lower sash and looked forth. Biker's Lane, though free from mud, was everywhere heavily bedewed. 
The narrow pavement glistened, the roofs glistened. Drops of water hung on all the edges of the great gas-lamp beneath her, which was still defying the dawn. The few miserable trees and bushes on the vague lands beyond the lane were dripping with water. The sky was low and heavy, in scarcely distinguishable shades of purplish-grey, and Biker's Pool, of which she had a glimpse, appeared in its smooth blackness to be not more wet than the rest of the scene. Nothing stirred. Not the tiniest branch stirred on the leafless trees, nor a leaf on a grey rhododendron bush in a front garden below. Every window within sight had its blind drawn. No smoke rose from any house chimney, and the distant industrial smoke on the horizon hung in the lower air, just under the clouds, undecided and torpid. The wet air was moveless, and yet she could feel it impinging with its cool, sharp humidity on her cheek. The sensation of this contact was delicious. She was surrounded, not by the satinly five-towns landscape and by the wretchedness of the familiar bedroom, but by the unanswerable, intimidating, inspiring mystery of life itself. A man came hurrying with a pole out of the western vista of the lane, and stopped in front of the gas-lamp, and in an instant the flame was reduced to a little fat worm of blue, and the man passed swiftly up the lane, looking straight ahead with bent shoulders, and was gone. Never before had Rachel actually seen the lamp put out. Never before had she noticed, as she noticed now, that the lamp had a number, an identity, 1054. The meek acquiescence of the lamp, and the man's preoccupied haste, seemed to bear some deep significance, which, however, she could not seize. But the aspect of the man afflicted her. She did not know why. Then a number of other figures, in a long spasmodic procession, passed up the lane after the man, and were gone out of sight. Their heavy boots clacked on the pavement, they wore thick, dirty, greyish-black clothes, but no overcoats small tight caps in their hands, and dark kerchiefs round their necks, about thirty of them in all, colliers on their way to one of the pits on the Moorthorne Ridge. They walked quickly, but they did not hurry, as their forerunner hurried. Several of them smoked pipes. Though some walked in pairs, none spoke, none looked up or aside. With one man walked stolidly a young woman, her overskirt raised and pulled round her head from the back for a shawl, but even those two did not converse. The procession closed with one or two stragglers. Rachel had never seen these pilgrims before, but she had heard them, and Mrs. Maldon had been acquainted with all their footfalls. They were tragic to Rachel. They inflected her with the most recondite horror of existence. They left tragedy floating behind them in the lane like an invisible but oppressive cloud. Their utterly incurious indifference to Rachel in her peignoir at the window was somehow harrowing. The dank lane and vaporous stagnant landscape were once more dead and silent, and would for a long time remain so, for though potters begin work early, colliers begin work much earlier, living in a world of customs of their own. At last a thin column of smoke issued magically from a chimney down to the left. Some woman was about, some woman's day had opened within that house. At the thought of that unseen woman in that unknown house Rachel could have cried. She could not remain at the window. She was unhappy, but it was not her woe that overcame her, for, if she was unhappy, her unhappiness was nevertheless exquisite. It was the mere realisation that men and women lived that rendered her emotions almost insupportable. She felt her youth. She thought, I am only a girl, and yet my life is ruined already. And even that thought she hugged amorously, as though it were beautiful. Amid the full disaster and regret she was glad to be alive. She could not help exulting in the dreadful moment. She closed the sash and began to dress, seldom glancing at Louis, who slept and dreamed and muttered. When she was dressed she looked carefully in the drawer where he deposited certain articles from his pockets in order to find a bundle of notes left by Julian. In vain. Then she searched for his bunch of keys, which ultimately she found in one of his pockets, and unlocked his private drawer. The bundle of notes lay there. 
She removed it and hid it away in one of her own secret places. After she had made preparations to get ready some invalid's food at short notice, she went downstairs. Part 7 She went downstairs without any definite purpose, merely because activity of some kind was absolutely necessary to her. The clock in the lobby showed dimly a quarter past five. In the chilly twilight kitchen, the green-lined silver basket lay on the table in front of the window, placed there by a thoughtful and conscientious Mrs. Tams. On the previous morning Rachel had given very precise orders about the silver, as the workaday electroplate was called, but owing to the astounding events of the day the orders had not been executed. Mrs. Tams had evidently determined to carry them out at an early hour. Rachel opened a cupboard and drew forth the apparatus for cleaning. She was intensely fatigued, weary, and seemingly spiritless, but she began to clean the silver, at first with energy and then with serious application. She stood at the table cleaning, as she had stood there when Louis came into her kitchen on the night of the robbery, and she thought of his visit and of her lost bliss, and the tears fell from her eyes on the newspaper, which protected the whiteness of the scrubbed table. She would not think of the future, could not. She went on cleaning, and that silver had never been cleaned as she cleaned it then. She cleaned it with every attribute of herself, forgetting her fatigue. The tears dried on her cheek. The faithful, scrupulous work either drugged or solaced her. Just as she was finishing, Mrs. Tams, with her immense bodice unfastened, came downstairs, apronless. The lobby clock struck six. "'Eh, missus,' breathed Mrs. Tams. "'What's this?' Rachel gave a nervous laugh. "'I was up. Mr. Forrest was asleep, and I had to do something, so I thought, "'Has he had a good night, ma'am?' "'Fair, yes, pretty good. I must run up and see if he is awake.' Mrs. Tams saw the stains on Rachel's cheek, but she could not mention them. Rachel had an impulse to fall on Mrs. Tams' enormous breast and weep, but the conventions of domesticity were far too strong for her also. Mrs. Tams was the general servant, what Louis occasionally called the esteemed skivvy. Once Mrs. Tams had been wife, mother, grandmother, victim, slave, diplomatist, serpent, heroine. Once she had bent from morn till night under the terrific weight of a million perils and responsibilities. Once she could never be sure of her next meal or the roof over her head or her skin or even her bones. Once she had been the last resource and refuge not merely of a house but of half a street, and she had had a remedy for every ill, a balm for every wound. But now she was safe, out of harm's way. She had no responsibilities worth a rap. She had everything an old woman ought to desire, and yet the silly old woman felt a lack, as she impotently watched Rachel leave the kitchen. Perhaps she wanted her eye blacked, or the menace of a policeman, or a child down with diphtheria, to remind her that the world revolved. End of chapter 12